You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. I've been thinking a lot this week about worship and the time we spend together here as a church. And with Pastor Nathan coming next week to, to lead in this service, we're, we're starting a new chapter. I'm excited about that. And so I brought him in and Rich and Kelly and we sit down and we began to talk about our dreams for worship. And again, like I said, I've been thinking about this and meditating on it. And the Lord was showing me some things in the scriptures, showing me some things in church history and just reminding me how precious this moment is that we have together here together. So let me just put it to you like this. If you had a big job in you tomorrow. If you have a big test coming up tomorrow, my guess is, is that you would prepare. You would study. You would get your mind in the right frame of mind so that when you showed up, you would be at your best. And let me ask you, if you've ever prepared for a test or you've ever prepared for a job interview or you've ever prepared for a big day, how many times have you had that level of preparation to come into God's presence in worship? How many times have you, the day before, on a Saturday, I mean, really asked God to get your heart right and ready for something special? Perhaps one of the reasons why we don't experience as much joy in our worship is because we've done very little, if anything, to prepare for it. So here's the thing, and here's the challenge that I want to give you. When we come to worship here at Ridgecrest Baptist Church from this day forward, we know that there's going to be plenty of heavy things on your heart. There is no doubt in my mind, every single Sunday, every single person that walks in this room, if they want to focus on a negative, there will be plenty of negative to weigh you down. But what I've instructed our folks to consider and what I'm going to ask you to consider is when we come in here, let's prepare ourselves for the joy of the Lord to fill our hearts. That when we leave this place, we're going to leave a little bit more in love with Jesus. And if we are just a little bit more in love with Jesus, that means we're going to have a little bit more joy in our lives. So let me encourage you in that way. I can tell this morning that you are so wound up, not. <clears throat> so clearly the, the, yeah, the clouds and the lack of preparation for worship today is proving my point. But I'm going to tell you this. I, I'm not, I, I know that sounds negative, but I'm saying this right now so that you will get it. We want to see God move in this place. And if we are serious about reaching people in the name of Jesus, we can't say, oh, hey, come and be depressed with us. When people come in here, they need to experience the fullness of, of the joy of Christ. So that's my gauntlet that I'm throwing down to you here today. And it ties in really well with our sermon. Because today we're going to talk about a heart under pressure. Because if we are serious about serving the Lord, we need to get serious about the prospect of our hearts being under pressure. When you make a determination to be a person of joy, spirit-filled, the enemy is going to put pressure on your life. And today we're going to see two ways that we can respond to pressure. One way is in the flesh and the other way is more filled with the spirit, okay? So if you have your copy of scripture, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26. 
Now, for time's sake, I'm going to try to give you the overview of the story and just a handful of verses. So we're going to begin in chapter 24, verse 1. So if you will stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's word, we're going to hear these words from the Lord. So I'm going to read seven verses here in chapter 24, and then we're going to skip over a page or two and be in chapter 26. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. That sounds like a really cool restaurant to me. But anyway, it wasn't, so you know. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, key verse here, afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Okay, it's an interesting story. You know, if your enemy is right there and you can get rid of him right away, you would say, say, hey, that was a good opportunity. But David knew better. Now, a very similar kind of story, but, but different enough that I do believe these two are very separate instances and show how much pressure David was under. Not just that he was on the run, but spiritually under great pressure. Now, let's go to chapter 26. And for time's sake, let's look here at verse 5 and following. I'm doing this for time's sake. And also because if you look at verses one through four, there are so many hard Hebrew names there. I don't want to mess them up. So verse five, then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying with the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zerah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guilty and be guiltless. Verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. Verse 11. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Let's pray. God, your servant David was under pressure. And I know, Lord, it would have been easy to give in to his desires. But thank you for how this passage shows us that even when our flesh is begging us to act, your spirit working through our conscience can keep us holy. I pray today we will learn that lesson, that we will grow in humility and holiness no matter what pressure 
we find ourselves under. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you're seated, yes, life is full of pressure. I was listening to this uh, thing on Audible the other day. It's a, it was a, one of those free stories they have on Audible from time to time. And it was about the space race between the Americans and the Russians. And it talked about how in the race to the moon, how much pressure they put on those astronauts. I mean, going to the moon's a big deal. And so if you are going to send people there, you need to make sure that, that they don't just know their job, but they can do their job when they're under extreme duress. Now, when we think about the Christian life, I think we need to realize it's even more stressful than going to the moon. How many things go wrong? We know a lot of things go wrong in the Christian life because we see people failing left and right all around us. We know it's hard. But what we need to realize is, is that we prepare our hearts for the pressure. And then when the pressure comes, we can make the right decisions. David was a mighty man of God. He was a mighty worshiper of God. And that helped him when the pressure came to him to make the right choices. Talk about pressure. Saul has 3,000 chosen crack troops who are coming after David. And David and his men are hiding in a cave. Must have been a pretty good sized cave. And of course, Saul enters in for some relief. So it's a pretty interesting story right there, you know? Um, A lot of things going on. Now, one thing I would say is they must not have been really good troops because they didn't exactly check out the cave all that well. You would think if they were really there to protect Saul, they would have done a better job. But God is up to something here. He is putting this situation before David to see how David's heart responds under pressure. Saul, yes, is keeping the pressure on, but I think we can honestly say that the Lord is putting this test in David's life. To be the king, he has to rise above his flesh, above his impulses. I think in these two chapters, we see the the pressure on. So here's what we need to consider. You know, when life is going your way, it's a little easier to do things God's way. But today we want to ask the question, what happens when the pressure is on? How will you respond when life puts pressure on you? Jesus, as we're going to learn here at the very end of our time together today, was a man under pressure. We see in Matthew 4, 8 and 9, as he was tempted by the devil on that very high mountain, we are told, the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I'll give you, he said, if you will fall down and worship me. There was pressure. Every day of Jesus' life, there was pressure. And I think that David's life and his actions here point us to the greater David, the one who is the true Messiah. But ultimately, we're all seeing what it takes to be successful in ministry and in life, even when there's pressure. So today we're going to see two basic responses to the pressure. One is honoriness. That's one way that we can respond. That's the flesh way, the sinful way. And then the second way we're going to look at in terms of response is we can respond with humility and holiness. The pressure is coming. What will the pressure bring out in you? Let's look first at the more negative example here. The flesh's response to pressure and it is honoriness. We see more than a little honoriness in David here. In both of these stories, it's just a little bit funny, some of the things he does. So here's what I, I was thinking as I was looking at David's life here. You know, some people just are thrill seekers, right? You know, they, they love you to double dog dare them or whatever. And David must have had that in his personality. 
So, so the king comes in, you're, you're, you're running for your life. The king comes in and you decide that you're going to sneak up stealthily. Did you see that in the text? Stealthily, you sneak up on the king and you cut off a corner of his robe. And then in the second story, you tiptoe through the camp and you take the spear of the king. Now, David is a thrill seeker, no doubt. If you took him to Silver Dollar City, he'd be looking for the roller coasters, okay? Not the merry-go-round. This is a man who is playing very dangerously. Now, we can respect that. We can say, wow, he had great courage. But I think the text is showing us not something meritorious or virtuous. I think the text is showing us that under pressure, David does what many of us do. And that is, he, he just got in the flesh a little bit and decided to, to be risky, to be a little bit of a, a smart aleck, maybe. Now, the funny thing about all this is, is that it's not funny at all. I mean, serious, th- seriously, this is a moment for David to expedite his, his path to the throne. But notice there's some disrespect here. The reason I know that's true is verse 5. If you look at that confession in verse 5 of ch- chapter 24, verse 5, you can see that David's heart is heavy. He knows that his heart has not been right. From the perspective of practicality, here is his chance. This is the shortcut to the castle. And look at chapter 24, verse 4 with me. If you have your copy of scripture open, David's men see this. They're like, this is the opportunity of our lifetimes. We can go right into being the king. We can get rid of our rival. Let's take care of this now. No big battles. No lives need to be fought. Just take him out, David, and we are on our way. Well, David's not, not, not satisfied that that's the right thing. But he listens to that just enough and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sneak up and I'm going to cut a corner of his robe and that way I'll be in his nightmares. That's just a way of saying, I can get you anytime I want. So it's kind of, kind of ornery. But you kind of understand it's psychological warfare. If I'm not going to kill him, that's okay. I'm not going to kill the guy, but I am going to get in his head. All right. Again, it sounds like what we would do in the world. In one sense, there and in chapter 26, where he goes down amongst the sleeping soldiers, you can just kind of see him tiptoeing. If we, you know, the old cinema, cinema you know, movies, you know, kind of tiptoeing through and going through, you can just see that. And he grabs that spear and he runs off. It, it's kind of funny. It's almost like he's pranking the king. But there's a whole lot more going on here than some kind of, uh, you know, uh, prank, some kind of high school antics or college university antics. This is getting serious because if you listen to Abishai, he is saying, you give me that spear and I won't need two opportunities. I'll get him in one. He's not joking. That's not a metaphor. He's going to kill this guy. This is not a prank. David has been seeking his thrills and playing his games, but the men around him are hardened veterans and they know how to kill people. And David is putting them, it's like, it's like uh, blood in the water for a shark. He's putting these men in a position where it would be so easy just to end it. I mean, if you're one of David's men and you've been running in the wilderness for, for months on end, I mean, this seems like the thing to do. It's what leaders do. 
leaders and politicians and many times in our world will see that for them, um, if, if they can expedite the road to power, they will cut the corners if they need to. But here's the thing. David can't act like other leaders because he represents more. He knows that he is anointed of the Lord. He knows that he cannot behave as other kings are. And though what started out as playful honoriness could have very quickly turned into cold-blooded murder, the world is always urging us to cut corners. Many of you have just started another year of university, another year of high school or school. And I I know this because I've lived through that. There are always those out there that are going to tell you that if you can cut a corner, if you can, if you can even if it's a little bit unethical, if you can get, your, get to the place where you're going a little quicker, go ahead and do that. That's the way it is. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Just The ends justify the means. Make the practical choice. But here, listen to me. If you want to be used of God, watch out for the practical choices because so often the practical choices will keep you from making the spiritual choices. You will only become who God wants you to be if you make wise spiritual choices. David had to learn this the hard way, and he had to learn it under pressure. Nabal, who we talked about last week, the man whose name means fool. We see that tucked in between chapters 24 and 26 is this narrative, this story of Nabal. So we know that David um, was not always on his game because in that chapter, it's Abigail that saves him and keeps him from doing the right thing. But here in these two chapters, he's the one that realizes it. It is his conscience that, that holds him back. David was just like you and I. Some days he was able to live for God and be obedient. And other days he failed miserably. You will know pressure. But that does not mean you have to give in to sin. Honoriness must never lead to disobedience. We cannot allow our desire to be funny or clever or perhaps ambitious to keep us away from the will of God. Beware of the sinful impulses of your flesh. There is no such thing as a mostly harmless sin. Every sin will rob you of holiness. And hear this, holiness is the easiest thing in the world to lose. The reason why if Jesus in all of his infinite glory were to show up here today, if he did not mask that glory, none of us could live because none of us have witnessed pure and perfect holiness. Because from almost the first minute we breathed air in this world, sin entered in. And you and I, everywhere we go, when we look to the Old Testament, we see examples of ritual impurity reminding us that we're always unclean. It's not just the lepers that are unclean. We are all unclean before God. We are all unholy because of sin. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't take much for us to lose our way. But if we want to be used of God We must strive for holiness. Holiness, I know many of us would say, Pastor, there's no way I can be perfect. I understand that. None of us can. But are you striving to be holy? Don't give up. Don't think that every day because if you messed up at the beginning of the day, that ruins the whole day. No, there is a way forward. And I think our second 
example here shows that the second way that we can respond to pressure is the spiritual way of holiness, the path to holiness and humility. Let me highlight again verse 5. And afterward, this is 24-5, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now this seems playful. I've already mentioned that. But there's more at work here. This was actually, in this culture, a sign of being rude and rebellious. The, the mantle or the robe of the king was a symbol of his authority. So to cut off the corner of it was more than a college prank. It was a sign of great disrespect to the anointed leader of the Hebrew people. And David did it. And the second he did it, he knew he was convicted. He realized that what he had done was a sin. Now, most of you are saying, well, wait a second. He cut off a corner of his robe. He didn't kill the guy. Come on, lighten up, pastors. No big deal. Like I said a moment ago, holiness is the easiest thing in the world to lose. And David allows his conscience to inform him, a conscience that is guided by God's word. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to quote some New Testament passages to you here in a minute, but realize this. The New Testament hasn't been written, but the word of God is eternal, and it's imprinted on our hearts. And, and, and you're going to find that David's actions here match up with all of Scripture because if you are being obedient to the one true God, you will be in line with his word. And the only way that you can remain in line with his word is to have a conscience that is dictated by the word of God and the spirit of God. And verse 5 shows us that David's conscience is fully operational. Let's just pause for a moment. I've, I've spoke before to you about conscience, but we need to hear it again and again and again. One of the hardest things in the world is to admit that you're wrong. Now, I know none of you have that problem. Everybody I'm looking at here, the second you realize you've done something wrong, you are so quick to admit it. You just automatically say, I've wronged you. I'm sure that's the way you are. And if that's true, this is the most holy room in America today. Because most of us, even when we know we're wrong, we push that, that voice of conscience away and say, yeah, I may be wrong, but that other person was more wrong or wronger or however you want to say it. I might, be, I might not have been right in what I said and what I did, but they're worse. Well, they'll answer for their sins and you will answer for yours. Holiness never comes about by us comparing ourselves with someone other than Jesus. You want to compare yourself to someone? Always compare yourself to Jesus and you'll always realize it's time to fess up because you need to confess. David does just that. It is hard to admit when we are wrong, but listen to this. A poor conscience can see the mistakes of others, but a healthy conscience can see the mistakes of one's own heart. I heard that, uh, you know, People expect certain things from the pulpit here at Ridgecrest. You know, you expect to hear certain kinds of sermons and things of that nature. One of the things that some people think that we need to be doing all the time is we need to talk about whatever the latest sin is in the culture and go out there and make sure we shout as loud as we can how evil and wicked those other people are. Let me tell you why people want to hear sermons like that. Because as long as we're talking about someone else's sins, you can come in worship and be perfectly comfortable. And though we're going to have joy in our services, we will not have joy and you be comfortable. 
We're going to have joy because we have comfort in the cross, not in our self-righteousness. Listen, the, 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 the world knows where we stand on sexual ethics. They understand where we stand on issues like abortion. I could articulate that. I think I could do it pretty well uh, week after week after week. I could tell you all the, 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 the questions of the culture, and we could talk about that, and we could be really harsh and hard. We could do that. But listen, the community around us, they don't want to just hear what we're against. They know that. They need to know what we are for. We are for them. We love them. We know that our sins are serious. Our conscience, I can't point a finger at other people without first acknowledging my sin. You want to reach your neighbor, you don't do it being self-righteous. You do it by saying, I was lost. I was in darkness. And God found me and saved me. A poor conscience sees the fault of the other. A healthy conscience sees one's own. Now, in this instance, again, David's disrespect seems relatively minor. I mean, it's just a a breach of minor etiquette here. He was disrespectful to a king. It's not exactly like some big deal to most of us, but it it is a breach of biblical ethics. Romans 13, 1 through 7, read those passages. And though Paul hadn't written them yet, notice that those verses talk about the respect of authority. A biblical principle is God puts people in places of authority, even folks you didn't vote for, by the way, and they're in authority... And we may not respect their positions and we don't have to like what they quote unquote believe, but we must respect and love the person. That's hard to do, especially when these people are legislating or making laws that can take away our religious liberties. People who are out there that are are trying to take away our ability to even gather in worship. There are states in this union where coming to worship has become front page news. Why? Because there are those in leadership that want to take away the right of Christians to gather. Now, they can claim health concerns and everything else, but look at their record. Look at their rhetoric. And you can get worked up about that. It's easy to do. But remember this. God puts people in positions of authority. David's conscience is feeling that weight And it becomes a great friend to him. One of the old, old writers, Richard Sibbs, he said, your conscience will either be your greatest friend or your greatest enemy. Another old writer put it this way, better to sleep in the house full of adders and venomous snakes than to sleep in one sin. Your conscience matters. I've heard it said, and most of us who who have been married, you know, you'll hear somebody mentor you and say, well, one thing that's always helped us is we never go to bed angry with one another. Well, that's a good thing for husbands and wives to hear. But I think this is even better advice, spiritually speaking, because it's telling us don't go to bed with even one sin unconfessed. Make sure that your heart is right with God every single day. David understands that he is a weak man. If you look at chapter 24, verse 14, he refers to himself, this is kind of rough, but as a dead dog or a flea. The language of chapter 26, verse 20 is very similar. Um, And what he's saying is this, I'm not too big and I'm not so big that I'm beyond being obedient. 
He knows that he is called. He knows the call of God is on his life, but that doesn't give him the right to do things his way. He knows to be used of God. He must do things God's way. And let me say to you, church, that is so true for us. None of us in this room that I know of are going to school to be a king or a queen. That's not in the, that's not in the, uh, it's fine in the Disney uh, movies, of course, but in the real world, I don't think that's going to happen. Sorry, Avery. Um, But it's probably not. It's not what we're going to school to do. But do you realize that you're still under pressure? We're, 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 we're our, our calling, what God has asked us to do is big and important because what you're called to do will make a difference in eternity. If you, it doesn't matter what your profession is, if you are in love with Christ, whatever you're good at, whatever your gifts are, God wants to use you to change the world and to bring about the coming of the kingdom. And if you miss that opportunity, what a sad thing. David doesn't kill Saul in either instance. In chapter 26, he does embarrass him. And there again, we see his conscience at work. One thing to keep in mind here is that not every opportunity you see before you is from God. If you have to compromise the truth, the opportunity is not from the Lord. Too many Christians make this mistake. They think that expediency is more important than obedience. Some of you have been following what's happening at Liberty University. And I don't know the whole story. But I do know that that institution was founded to be a light in the darkness, a Christian university that grew and grew and grew. But the stories coming out of Lynchburg, Virginia are letting us know that some individuals, those who were in leadership, not just one man, but several people evidently, allowed expediency to trump obedience. How many churches have said, we'll grow, we'll grow, no matter what we have to do to bring people in, expediency. At the expense of obedience. David humbled his heart before the voice of God, the word of God. Only this helped him maintain holiness under pressure. The only way that you will maintain holiness under pressure is to humble yourself before the Lord. Holiness begins with humility. Romans 12, 19. Again, David couldn't read it. But he acts as though he did. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What a powerful truth. I don't always understand this. In the moment when we are called to do the right thing, we may not understand exactly why. It may may seem like a great opportunity is going by. One modern commentator puts it this way. Understanding sometimes has to wait, but obedience cannot. There is never a time for you to compromise on obedience to Jesus. There's never a reason to do that. There will be many times that you don't understand. But only those who are remaining close to the holiness of God can be a part of the revival of God. We change the world infrequently because of our lack of holiness And holiness begins with humility. David throughout chapters 24 and chapter 26 shows his great humility. Saul, on the other hand, shows us again and again why he's not supposed to be king. He's broken promise after promise. He's told David that he will not pursue him, but he keeps pursuing him. And when David calls him out on it, 
Saul says, David, you are good. The word in Hebrew here is tobah. And this word means more than just good in the English sense. It means holy and righteous. It points to something deep. It shows someone who is truly seeking after the Lord. David, when he was under pressure, found a way to be good. So you know what that tells me? You and I, no matter what pressure we face, we have the capacity to still do good. The world expects you to cave under pressure. The world expects you to pin your enemy to the ground. The world expects you to win at all cost. But Jesus has a better plan for you. Jesus wants you to become a servant, a sacrificial servant of all. Let me show you what I mean by that. Did David have pressure? Yes. But there has never been a man on this planet who had more pressure than the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. If you have your copy of Scripture, I want to show you three quick passages. We're just going to read them. Very little commentary. Luke 22. Turn there. Get your Bibles out. Open up your app. Stay off Facebook. Luke 22, 27. Jesus asked this question. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines. Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Those who make a difference, even when the pressures are on, they serve others instead of serving themselves, just like Jesus. Now turn to John. Let's go over a couple gospel books here. Let's go to John chapter 6. We're going to be in John 6 and then John 10, if you want to hold your place. John 6, 38. Listen to this. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. David, when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, David, when he went and stole Saul's spear, was doing things his way. But Jesus says, I didn't come to do it my way. I came to do it my, my father's way. And now John 10, 15, that wonderful 10th chapter that deals with the good shepherd. Look at verse 15. He says, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, the pressure that Jesus was under led him to the cross. That's what he did for you and for me. Is your heart under pressure today? I bet it is. It's hard to live in this world and not know the pressures of the world. Maybe lately you've compromised in your personal life. Maybe you had some freedom from some sins and now we're going back. You've taken two steps forward in recent years and now COVID-19 and all the chaos this year, you find yourself falling back into familiar patterns. Well, David, when the spirit convicted him, he acted, he confessed and he grew. So if you've failed, well, join the club. Every person in this room has one way or the other. But not everybody allows their conscience to guide them as it did David. As it should guide you. Stay where you are. Make no move. Change nothing. 
It may not be disastrous today, but disaster will come. The enemy is not going to give you a release. And many times the relief and the release that we have is only there because of the flesh. So what are you going to do? We come to this moment many weeks and we hear a word from the Lord and assume it's for someone else. But what if it's for you? Humble yourself. I know the word holy seems like a far stretch for me, for you, but it's not. Because if the blood of Jesus is covering you, all things are possible. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.